completed a traditional three-year retreat, which is why he's called Lama Rod. And he's a very deep practitioner with a radical intelligence and gentleness and kindness. I respect him very much, and I invited him because I knew that he gets it. Yeah. And he's also queer and African-American, and he is bringing something to this gathering that I would not be able to. So I felt the need for that kind of completion in our team for us to hold the event to really um, feel together into what happened in Orlando on Saturday night, Sunday morning. So would you be willing to come and sit here? I was, I was so happy that he came. Thank you. So what we would like to do is each speak a little bit, then have some time for um, you to speak, and at the end, about five minutes to play some music and show some photographs of the people who were killed. Um, I don't want to pass them around while we're talking because it would probably be distracting, but they're nice to see. The other thing I want to say is that tomorrow, also, Madeline Klein will be holding a session for the... Um, especially to hold the event with the LGBTQI community here. And it'll be a little bit more, I think. Well, I think we're going to do a lot of the same stuff. We've been talking about it ever since we decided that we were both doing it. There's plenty of room for this for everyone. So you're welcome to come back tomorrow at 6, I think it is. But there's plenty of posters there to see down below. So here we are, we're practicing a slightly alternative religious or spiritual practice in a space that we feel is safe or we assume is safe. Um, when I teach in North Carolina, many people who come to retreats don't tell their families that they've come to a Buddhist retreat. They say they're going to a spa or going camping or something like that because there wouldn't be the tolerance for what we're doing here tonight together and feeling like it's okay and we probably didn't have to hide it from anybody. So it's not, but, and yet because it's slightly a distinct cultural bubble that we're in, it may not be difficult to imagine that um, some quality of, you know, censure or judgment happening for what we're doing here, just like what happened in Orlando. There really isn't, sacred space may not necessarily be safe space, we can create safety with the love and compassion that we have among ourselves and to feel ourselves as a close community able to share love and vulnerability together and to practice with what we feel, which um, that's our purpose here. But let's say during the Rwandan genocide, there was one church where 5,000 people were killed together trying to hide in a church. And afterwards, uh, one of the survivors said, if you really knew me and you really knew yourself, you would not have killed me. So that's kind of the theme, that sense of connection and connection, connecting with what has happened as one human family and bringing whatever we may feel about Orlando to um, this meeting. Rod and I were sort of joking that Maybe some people are just here because it's Wednesday <laughs> and you're going to get this anyway. <laughs> so I had a little process around being the person who was giving the talk tonight. At first they said, well, what are you talking about? And I'm like, oh, joy, how about joy? And they're like, well, somebody else already talked about joy. So I said, okay, joy and equanimity then. And, and then Orlando happened and I'm like, you know, that's not really right. 
kind of not the right tone or I'm not feeling like that right now. So I said, why don't I do an Orlando thing? And the process of it was really interesting because like I'm also working with some, collaborating with a gay friend, Larry Yang, who's actually gonna be Grand Marshal of San Francisco Pride as kind of like the mindfulness king of Dharma. It's so great, but the Orlando event happened. We had a conference call, uh, you know, I think it was, it was actually Sunday morning and I said, are you doing Larry? And he's like, oh man. And my mind went, well, of course he's upset because he's gay. You know, like, he's upset more than me. Like, and then I thought, well, I should be more upset than I am. I felt bad. I thought, God, I'm like, I must have sounded so callous. Of course I should have known how Larry was feeling. Of course I should have known he'd really be freaking out. And then when I volunteered to do this, it just started to grow. You know, I had sort of heard about it, and then I started feeling more into it. And then in order to give this talk or hold this session, I started to really listen to the news and to learn stuff about it. And I think for me, the tipping point was when one of my friends said, just imagine how happy they were just before it ended, just before that person came in. And then I found out it was Latin night, and that brought it all in, because I was, um, I used to be a bartender at Tobacco Road in Miami, down by the river, which stayed open till five. And me and my badass gay friend Julio Suarez got up to a lot of different things in Miami at night. <laughs> and he's not alive anymore. He died of AIDS in San Francisco kind of a, a few years back. So, I mean, I just feel all those Latinx people dancing and then having someone come in who was not able to tolerate their own uh, same-sex love feelings and having been indoctrinated by a belief system that said that people who love their same gender should be killed got on that wave. And um, not only himself, but many other people had to suffer, including us here today, or many of us. But I'd like to say that in a way, the pain through which we share this event um, is also our point of connection with each other as human beings to like to feel the humanity of it we're part of the waves of millions of people in the world who have come in solidarity. And I invite us to feel ourselves in solidarity with the beauty and joy of those who were killed and the deservingness of safety for what we have inside and what each other has inside. So I want to then say that I started to feel really go down more and more into like being kind of a mess and feeling like I would not be able to even do this and I shouldn't be doing it and it doesn't, um, it's not me, like I'm not gonna be good enough and I won't be able to handle it. Like it's felt like such a big thing because it feels like once you start pulling the threads of this, you have Afghanistan where there's been a war since the Victorian period, you have the war in the Middle East, you have terrorism and hatred and weapons and all the legislators who vote to make weapons more easily available and it pretty much ends up being like the suffering of our world reflected in this one microcosm and how much harm one person can cause based on sort of a bunch of conditions that come together in this way and it's not as if it isn't common you know, this is happening every week or something, and 
every three days, a black man gets killed in Boston, pretty much gets shot. Like 1,264 people have been murdered in Boston since 1994. So it's right here, and it's not other from us, all this stuff. So then how do we how do we practice with this, and how do we practice if it feels like it sort of fucks us up, like if we're like not okay with it, um, or what are we doing here, being Buddhists about this? Are we just trying to be in a bubble where we get to be calm and kind of shed it and find our breath and find our little nirvana here by ourselves and each one on our own little lily pad like a bunch of lotuses in a pond? I don't think so. Um, it seems clear that by us meditating here, these issues are not going to be resolved. Like we may find, I hope to give some teachings from the Buddhist tradition that are supportive of sort of knowing both how to cope for ourselves and what to do and what some of the teachings about working with this kind of situation is. So the world has never been an easy place, really. During World War II, I think 20,000 people a week were getting killed and murdered. Um, it's much less now. But there's something about, Rod will talk about that violation of sacred space where we can express love and vulnerability and intimacy in a way that has felt protected and for that to have been violated feels really um, intense. So the first teaching that Buddhism will offer for this is that we understand and we see what has happened, we accept that there's a reality there, we open up to it, we let it be, we let it be real for us. We let it be real that queer people feel vi face violence every day and that unarmed African-American young men are getting killed still. And that even so many lives are getting squeezed by conditions so that there's impoverishment. You know, I just read in Boston there's a $250,000 cooking school that's going to turn into tech startups and they don't know where the cooking school is going to go. And the cooking school was helping people feel like they could get a job in a fancy restaurant instead of like behind a cash register somewhere. And they interviewed a lot of the people who were being trained who hadn't had access to all the privileges of education that we have and how much it had changed their lives. And that's just going to be gone pretty much because of money, you know, where are they, where are they going to go? So to be able to acknowledge that this is true is kind of like its own piece of work. But it's hard to feel, but it can be done as a human being. And it's part of a um, ability that we have that actually allows us to connect not only with our own deeper loving heart and not turn away from the deservingness of people who've been hurt. Like what happens when we insulate ourselves is we start to say something about how it's those people who are suffering and we don't really feel into it could be me and you or it sort of is me and you. Like we could have so easily been born as somebody else. So it's hard to feel things and we can start here and now like see where we may feel hopeless, despairing, angry or tired of hearing this kind of stuff, like this is the news that we hear every day, I come here to meditate, I don't want to have this, um, 
what do we want to turn away from? And if it isn't this right now, I'm sure that you will find something else that you don't prefer to feel. Parts of ourself we might want to change or feel ashamed of or failures or our whole world, the way it feels. Like, we f I feel it every day. Like, there's global warming, you know, and the unpleasant feeling of that, like the planet is dying and so many species are disappearing and the everything is kind of out of balance. The weather, we feel it, but it's still sort of okay, you know. Some people say, well, I like it because it's warmer, you know. At the time, when that happens, do I remember to walk with it like I'm holding a small child in my arms, like myself and how I feel? Often not, you know, often it becomes something I try to push down or immediately, like, take action on, like, sort of scold my husband and tell him he should turn the light off or something, you know, <laughs> like, that's carbon, <laughs> something. Do I remember that acceptance that this is happening is kind of one of the options and exception for, and accepting how I feel um, is one of the options and that that is a way of opening my heart and mind further understanding from the teachings of the Buddha that it's actually a worthwhile activity, that it can be done and that it's not um, damaging for the heart to open to the sorrow in oneself or in others and how dangerous it can be if we can't do that since we know that um, our teacher Omar Mateen was not able to accept a part of himself that he was ashamed of and that led to something really terrible. Or when we don't acknowledge that there is global warming, then it's impossible to deal with what's happening, right? You just have to say this is happening as a condition of its, of its being healed. Or if we don't accept and see clearly that there's anger in ourself and a tendency to division, then, um, you know, we too are part of the divisiveness in this world. So the teaching is that we stay gentle and we stay in relationship with ourself, especially in our Theravadan tradition and through the sensations of the body that can make a kind of stable place to be present when there's difficult things in the mind, like the mind can tend to really spin and embroider and make things um, feel much more obsessive. Or let's say if I feel like there's some certain way that I should be feeling, say, about Orlando itself, like I should be feeling a certain way, and I'm not feeling that way, instead I'm feeling some other way, then what happens? Like, do I start to feel shame, or do I get angry with myself, and what happens with that embroidery? Like, if we can directly go to how we feel and open up to it, maybe it's actually a natural response. Maybe it's actually a healthy response. Like my funny friend, Julio, who he really used to torture me, I must say, but he said, um, you know, when the world is fucked up, it's kind of normal to also be fucked up. Very deep wisdom <laughs> there. It's true. So as we start to see that we can be gentle with terror or pain or physical pain or failure and um, even prejudice or separation or thinking like this is happening to somebody else, like what does this have to do with me, like that's how I feel because I don't want to feel more or I, that's what I believe, then you're not in denial about it anymore. You're starting to be open. You're not saying there's something wrong with you for having these feelings and we begin to be much less controlled by what we feel that way.
the second of the three steps that I'm presenting here, and they come from my friend Hugh Byrne. I don't know where he got them, but gave a beautiful talk on the Bodhisattva path. It's not enough just to acknowledge what we feel. I mean, that's a task in itself, but also we're called to love uh, by our practice. So to turn anger into kindness and revenge into forgiveness and hatred and numbness into compassion can also be done as we carry like our sorrow and our sadness and just touch into it and do what we can do to bring love to ourselves and to the situation. Like yesterday I talked to a friend of mine whose husband is very slowly losing his mind and she said like she's a very subtle like long-time person who is very like so discerning like I feel um, a little bit in awe of her when she talks. I always try to find like what can I talk to this person? So what can I offer this person? I just listen. And she was talking about like times when he seems like he can't lock the back door anymore and times when he can again and trying to figure out like how much to check up on and how much to give him his integrity and freedom and stuff. And she said sometimes when she starts to feel it's really hard, she just puts her hand over her heart for herself, you know, and she said somehow it just makes it a little bit better. So let's say we find in ourself like perfectionism, imbalance, drunkenness, craziness, alternative sexual shame, wish for intimacy through really unproductive ways. And as we acknowledge it and not turn away with our heart, and we can start to love ourselves through that. And that way turn anger into kindness and revenge into forgiveness. Very slow process. And it's really important to say that if we're not ready to forgive and we're not ready to open up, that's what we open up to, is to say, I'm not ready, you know, I, the, my pain is too great, or I really don't like this, maybe I should actually get some help with it or do something different from the way that I'm acting. That's also could be important. But what happens is that we start to see that all the stuff in us that's hard to feel is similar to all the stuff that's driving everybody else in this world. We can start to see that the enemy isn't outside of us. It doesn't mean that we then like rush to vote for someone whom we perceive as divisive, but if we see ourselves divisive, we can understand that that's what it feels like. Um, and maybe that's not the way we wanna behave, even if we see these crazy forces coming up. So one of the people who was imprisoned with Nelson Mandela, who's named Tokyo Sexuali, he said it's less about liberating black people from bondage than liberating white people from fear. And liberating people from fear is said with a gentleness and an understanding when the beginnings are the reality of compassion for what fear feels like. So when I first thought about like what happened on the dance floor, like all that happiness and safety turning into violence, I first felt like this horrible anger and rage, like that this should not have happened. And then I started crying more and I actually felt good after that. Like it was definitely better than being numb and definitely better than feeling separate um, because I felt like I could I could really care and that it was 
important to me that this an event like this could matter, even though it was in some ways seemingly far away, you know. To feel that I have access to the love in my heart uh, for those who are suffering, and it doesn't just as I understand that there's rage in me that I see reflected in other people, and that all those mental forces exist almost like they're not anybody's possession. The same thing with the love, like I can love someone I've never known and I can love some thing I've never had. I can be sorry for things that I never um, even imagined in a way, but no longer feeling like controlled or soiled by that quality of separation that's so painful in our world. So number three um, is a vision for our own action. So the teaching of first accepting what's true and second opening to it with through the heart, not just the brain. And number three, like to feel where are we touched and where are we moved to do something. To and it may be that for some of us, like our outer action is already very like much engaged with this world and trying to make things better and easier and you know, we just need meditation to be able to let go of stuff that we carry. Like one of my young friends goes to those homicide scenes and tries to talk to people who have been just traumatized by seeing their loved ones killed. And But he doesn't actually meditate just to calm down. Um, but it's he's a very dedicated person. But he, I could forgive him if he meditated just to calm down and just to find his breath somewhere in, in there, you know. But let's say for oneself, like a lot of our pain may be internal and what we need to do is find our way around inside of that and that ourself is the main person whom we need to give our love to because we're not ready to be more open outside or our pain is huge or everything feels complicated. Like we start trying to do things out of obligation or ego and it feels like maybe it's better for me to not do very much, not do that much. Maybe I'm angry and unbalanced, but I can at least not create more violence inside myself. So that might be the action of saying like, it's I've never looked inside myself. It's more important for me to look inside than outside because so much of our training is outside. And then to say that this heart has known oppression, this heart has known pain, this heart has known rage, and yes, there is a way and we can find our way. And if you feel really broken, then we know about that too. You know, we know what that's like. It's a beautiful thing, and you can see it in the work of so many civil rights activists like Dr. King, talking about how we'll meet your force with soul force. You know that one. So to find a vision of what oneself can do, um, it's important to know, like through our own investigation and understanding that, um, I have this quote, I don't know where I put it, where Nelson Mandela said, um, nobody is born hating other people for the color of their skin or the way they look or the what they do, like they have to be taught. And just as much as the hatred can be taught, it can be unlearned too. And we can train in ourself in the sort of real lab of our heart and see what that's like. So as we bring a little love to ourselves and get reminded, our feeling begins to soften or Maybe we reach out to someone who knows what it's like to feel like I'm just really not in balance right now. And, you know, um, yeah, I know I've been there. You know, that kind of thing. Like, it's nothing to feel so bad about. Um, that's part of what this is like, being a person. 
and then it somehow gets resolved in a completely different way than we thought, um, not by being corrected, but by being loved. And we feel that this kind of strange enchantment that has had a hold of us um, lets go a little bit just in this moment, and we see that this is one of the kinds of positive changes we would like to make. Which way are we going to turn this ever-changing world? So it's interesting to look where life touches us with sorrow, like, and to make an aspiration that maybe I could have a chance to work with whatever that is. It'll be awful if you do get the chance, <laughs> probably. Um, it, often some of the things that seem to come into our way are uh, not so easy, but they may feel right that um, we get our chance to do something that might help in our relationship or our heart or our community or even the world. So to wonder what is being asked of us. So I'll close just to say, uh, not turning away from what's true, but also not turning away from what's possible. And not be afraid to show our love however it might manifest. I was had a fantasy that I was just going to kiss Lamarad right now like the Canadian Prime Minister and the opposition candidates did, but I think I'll just let you imagine that event. <laughs> um, thank you, and I'll pass the speaking. I want to thank Kate for inviting me to be here uh, this evening. Um, it's been a very, um, you know, very interesting. Um, it's on. Mm -hmm. um, a few days. We're going to adjust the mic. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> so it's um, really interesting um, um, that you started out with uh, um, the story about how um, you taught down south and, you know, people would lie about where you know, where they were going to for retreats. Um, because I would do the same thing when I started out in my Dharma practice. I, I'm from Georgia. I grew up in Georgia. I was actually living in this area when I came um, into Dharma. Um, but I would go away for intensive retreats, you know, 10-day retreats. And, you know, of course, you know, um, my phone, I would have a message saying, oh, I'm away, you know, for a week. I can't get to my phone. I'm away on a retreat you know, didn't say what kind of retreat. Um, and then I would get off a retreat and I would talk to my mom or someone like that and she would ask, oh, what kind of retreat were you on? And I was like, oh, a, a, a prayer retreat. <laughs> or a meditation retreat. You know, never a Buddhist retreat. Um, and all the while I was doing more and more Dharma and meditation and going away more and more and had 
conspired to enter into three years of solitary, well, three years of, of group silent retreat, um, and had made all those plans and arrangements before I actually came out. <laughs> and said that, oh, I'm a Buddhist, and I'll see you in three years. <laughs> um, everyone had at least a year's notice, as you know. But I had already made my mind up and was on route to my monastery to prepare for the retreat before I really disclosed. But I took that time, that period of coming out as a Dharma practitioner, practitioner to actually come out completely, you know, as um, a gay man, as a queer man as well to my family. Um, and to be completely transparent because that was so much of what I understood Dharma practice to be was to live in one's truth and to be one's truth and to manifest that truth to not only yourself but to the community around you. And so I took that opportunity. I actually was very efficient and I wrote an essay um, where I just laid out my whole life story and that I was gay and I was Buddhist. Um, which where I came from to be both gay and Buddhist was, you know, unheard of. Who had ever heard of that? Um, especially uh, a black gay Buddhist. Um, and so I wrote this essay and, you know, it was distributed, you know, amongst my family. And of course, at the end of the essay, I asked for money. Uh, <laughs> Because I wanted to be efficient, so why write a separate like funding letter? Um, so I had, to, I had to pay for my retreat. Um, needless to say, I didn't get any money uh, from my family. Um, and so it's, and I think a lot about that, and especially I've been in reflection about that, the whole process, um, that whole episode, um, because I've really been thinking about what it has, what does it mean to hide? You know, what does it mean to, to, to hide one's truth in order to remain safe, to remain alive? Um, and what happens when after you go through all the trouble of hiding and lying and, and uh, reinterpreting tr the truth, you know, you're still killed. You still don't survive. Um, what I call your intersectionality. Um, you know, you still don't survive after you've taken these steps to, to protect yourself. Um, so I think about um, that club on Saturday night um, and the fun that people were having and the excitement and the exuberation and the feeling of being free and 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 feeling that one can be themselves this feeling of vulnerability and transparency you know but when i talk about this i'm actually not talking about orlando and the pulse club i'm actually talking about the gay club that i was at on saturday night um, a club that I was able to actually leave alive, you know, I, where I was actually able to, to have fun and to be myself and to think maybe briefly that, you know, maybe there 
is some reason to think that this space is unsafe, but to actually have the privilege to let that thought go and say, you know, not, not here, not now, not for me, you know, because I'm somehow very special, that somehow I was preordained to survive somehow, you know, that I am not someone who is a victim of, of uh, a mass shooting. You know, or I am not someone who is a victim of uh, racial profiling. You know, so I'm not that kind of person. Um, but somehow I live in samsara, and that makes me that kind of person. And so I was thinking that on Saturday night, and of course, like all of us, we wake up to a different reality the next morning. And it was very different for many of us. Um, and to be faced with that kind of violence, you know, and to have different responses to have the response of, that's me. I'm the one that was murdered last night. I can't leave my house. You know? Or you may have, have had the response of, oh, that's terrible, but I have to go to brunch now, so we'll think about it later. So I wonder why there's been such an extreme in responses to this, you know? and I. And I wonder, you know, what that means for how we understand our interconnectedness in these situations that somehow we don't understand that what the Buddha taught us early in his ministry that others are our mirror, that we are others, you know, that that what happens to one person is actually happening to us. So I wonder where we lost that connection, where we lost that teaching at, and I wonder how we reestablish that. How do we reconnect to this reality that when one person is killed, that impacts us? We may not know it, we may not feel it, we may not even hear about it or even know about it in our, our lives. Countless people die every day. And we seem to go on and on, you know, living our lives. But then certain people die and then our lives stop. And I continue to wonder what, what, what makes one life more special than the other? And how many lives must it take for us to care? And whose lives? And I wonder why our compassion is so selective. You know, and why we value certain lives over others. And what does that mean for our Dharma practice? You know. And these are questions that I continue, I continue to process and I continue to look at and examine. You know, and this is so much a part of how I understand Dharma is by uh, going into this very complex space and trying to make meaning of it. You know? 
And sometimes we, we really, we, we try to keep ourselves really safe. You know, and we have these really sophisticated ways of bypassing these difficult issues, but we're actually not bypassing the issue, we're actually bypassing ourselves and our experiences. We're bypassing our own bodies, right? We're bypassing our breath, we're bypassing um, the experiences of our own minds, you know, because we feel as if we can't endure, we can't take, we can't be with what's arising for us in our experiences. And when we do that, I think we often, we forget that when we bypass our experience, we lose this profound connection and insight into the experiences of others around us. So there's a numbness that begins to happen. There's a numbness that we, we kind of put on. It's like a, a, a suit of armor. It's a mask. This, this um, impermeable uh, um, suit that we, we're not able to be touched. We're not penetrated. We go through the world safe and contained. And I wonder what kind of violence that creates for our communities. But the real question is what kind of violence are we enacting upon ourselves when we choose not to care about our own bodies and our experiences? And we say that the world is too much. The world is actually not too much. The world is not overwhelming. You know. And I often find that when I look into my experience and when I look into my Dharma practice, there is a confidence, there is, um, there is a trust there in my practice that helps me to hold the space for the complexity, for the despair, but also for the sadness that opens up for me. That I can go into the world and I can say, actually, I am of the nature to die. I am of the nature to grow old. I am of the nature to get sick. I am of the nature to be within a crowd of people and to be killed by a bullet. I am of the nature to be killed by a police officer. Now I've said this many times in this room actually. I've said this several times. Every time I come I say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I talk about trauma, I talk about our bodies, I talk about depression, I talk about despair, you know, and, and I want to, to remind you that I experience these things, but I am not these things. These are part of my experience, and I learn from the experiences of my body and my, of my mind. I use these things as teachers, as guides, as my guru. You know, my anger, my rage, my despair teaches me about how to be truly effective in the world, to be truly connected to not only myself and to those around us. It teaches me what violence really is. It teaches me that I am not the only one who can't make sense of the things that I experience every day. But it also teaches me that it's still not an excuse to give up. You know? So, you know, everyone expects Dharma teachers to really have it together, you know, to be these products. Um, and 
Um, and I think that when we expect our teachers to be that, we don't allow our teachers to have the space to sit in front of you and to, to explain that Dharma is a process. And if I tell you that Dharma is this place that you can arrive and settle into and that you're there and you'll be fine, I think I'm committing a kind of violence because that's not what Dharma really is. It's not a place you get to, it's a place that um, we are constantly working with and wrestling with. You know, maybe when we attain enlightenment, it will make sense, but you know, I've seen the Dalai Lama several times, I've seen the Kramapa, who's the head of my lineage and school of Tibetan Buddhism. I've seen them in person, and they look like they are uh, still working out issues. <laughs> You know, so I have confidence that it's okay that I continue to struggle. So I think that one of the things that, you know, again, that I really struggle with and, and trying to make meaning of is how we, how the, our sacred spaces um, are destroyed and violated. You know, um, I think that one of the things that I really am very pissed about is how someone could violate someone's safe space. You know, because I, I think about interconnectedness and interrelatedness, as Thich Nhat Hanh talks about. You know, there's a we're all connected, we're all tied to one another in these ways that are profound and nuanced and subtle. It's like dropping a pebble in a pond, there's a ripple effect. We're filling the ripples. And we have been subject to all kinds of um, violations of sacred space. You know, the violation of the sacred space of our bodies the violation of the sacred spaces, of our physical spaces that we gather in, the violations of these beliefs that we hold dear that seem to be um, disrespected and trampled upon through hateful and racist rhetoric. We're always being put upon, and there's a kind of violence that we're struggling to make sense of. You know, so the gay club for me was one of those sacred spaces for me and it continues to be a sacred space. You know, and one of the things that we don't talk about, you know, is how important our spaces are to us in order to practice freedom, to practice openness. The same way that we gather here tonight in Sangha to practice Dharma and to be ourselves it's the same way that many of us gather many nights of the week in a club or a bar to be ourselves. There's not a lot of difference between this space and that space. Because when we start talking about liberation, there's not just one path to liberation. There are many paths to liberation, spiritual paths, social paths to liberation. And to truly practice compassion and metta means to allow each of us to choose the spaces for us to be free in. 
you know, freedom is no one else's business except for our own. So I guess, you know, as I close tonight, you know, just just wanting to to remind us that there are many people who are hiding and you may actually be one of those people in this room and you have your sacred space and you have your safe space and to think about how important it is for you to make these kinds of choices because you want to be safe and you want to be happy and you don't feel safe enough. You know, we think about the spaces that are continuously taken away from us, taken away from groups, taken away from cultures, how we are part of that taking away of sacred space. You know, how do we practice an act of compassion where we're acknowledging our own suffering and we're using that to acknowledge the suffering around us and we're taking another step and saying that I want to be an agent to, allevi to alleviate suffering in the world. Because it's not enough to say that I want suffering to be eradicated. I actually have to move my body into this aspiration. You know, to be a protector of spaces, to be a protector of, of aspirations of others, to be a protector of the things that people need to be free, to feel human, to feel connected. You know, and some of us are, you know, not that affected, you know, by things because, you know, maybe we live in Cambridge, you know, where nothing ever happens in Cambridge, you know. That means we have much more work to do, you know. So how do we leave our comfort and get involved with the messiness of liberation work? You know, because this is what the world needs now. And it's not just a song lyric, it's a painful reality that we actually don't have a choice anymore. You know, because we, our safe spaces, our sacred spaces, the safety of those spaces are no longer guaranteed anymore. But again, this is why we practice, right? You know, we have, we try to practice and create these shiny dharmas, these little shiny spotless dharma practices like how we buy our new iPhones and our new cars or our new bicycles and we don't want to get a scratch on them, you know. But uh, we have to take our dharma out into the world and it gets dirty and it gets messy and it gets scratched up. 
you know. But when that happens, we earn our dharmas. And whatever that means to you, I just like saying that. What does it mean to earn your dharma? Because I think as we earn our dharma, that's when wisdom arises. So we should hold the space to feel sad and to feel discomfort. You should hold the space to feel agitated and angry and bothered because Lama Rod came into this space and said something that I didn't want to hear tonight. I think that's important. And I think I would love if I agitated you tonight. You know, I, I think that's why people call me to, to come here. <laughs> So no, I can just leave and go back to my sangha. And <laughs> you know, and that's all I you know really wanted to say tonight. You know, and I appreciate being here with my friend and colleague. You know, we support each other, and this is what we should be doing more. We should be teaching together across lineages and across traditions because it's not just separate communities of dharma, it's one community. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.